Um, not a whole lot. We're going to jump in soon, but I do want to tell you that um, we will be off the not this next week, but the following on the 31st. We will not have a study, okay? Um, and so we'll resume the week after that. Can you turn me up? Actually, <laughs> so I will remind us much better. Nobody has ever asked me to, yeah, be louder. <laughs> no. Um, on the October 31st, we will not have study, okay? So we will just have one week off and we'll resume. Um, and Boss took advantage and has a fun trip. Uh, not fun, fun, but it's a uh, mission, yeah. Yeah. kind of pastoral, pastoral-related trip to Poland and London. Is that right, boss? Yeah. I'll leave uh, the tw night of the 28th, Sunday the night, the 28th. I'll be in Poland with um, Scotty's actually going to so be him and Fantastic. me. Fantastic. And um, some West End pastors. We're going to meet with European church planters. And then after four days there, fly over to London. And I'll meet with UK church planters and uh, then fly back on the Monday. That's awesome. So that's a trip we ought to pray about. That's it's wonderful. So, well, let me pray for us this morning as we start. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace for this beautiful day. Thank you for this opportunity to gather and, and study your word. I love that you have... Um, open this book in new ways to each of us. I thank you for David and his faithfulness in teaching. I pray that you would uh, refresh him, replenish him, inspire him, and, um, and that he would be aware of your presence as he, even as he speaks and teaches. We need you, Lord. We love you, and we pray that there would be great fruit at Christ's community as a result of our time in your word. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Diane appreciate it very much. Uh, so, good morning, everybody. I was uh, doing some work this morning on this, and um, just quick review work, and, and thinking about the schedule during the week, and going, well, you know, there's points in the week where it's heavy lifting, you know. Uh, this isn't one of them. <laughs> I was sitting down with a cup of coffee and, and getting ready for this and going, well, this is one of the fun, this is one of the fun things in the week, is hanging out with all of you on Wednesday morning. So, Looking forward to that. So um, on, in your study guide, I want us to uh, turn, if you will, please, to page 27. Uh, we're going to be Romans 9, part 4. We, we, might, we might dip over a little bit into chapter 10. We'll just kind of see, see how we do here, um, see what kind of progress we make. Now, where we're at is at the very end of chapter 9. Uh, so again... Paul is dealing with the mystery of the large-scale rejection of Jesus as the Messiah that has taken place in Israel. And he notes his own heart uh, for the people of Israel and that God has not rejected his people, that his word has not failed, and then in 14 that there is no injustice with God, and uh, then in um, verses 19 and following that God is uh, the creator God, the redeem, creator redeemer God, and sovereign in all of these things. And then he, he, in unpacking that, brings forward some remarkable things that we need to pay attention to in terms of the expansiveness 
of grace. And, and so I want to say right at the outset something about that expansiveness. Because sometimes when, when people start talking about election or sovereign grace and so on, you get the impression that, it, that, that God is not interested in saving many. Uh, sort of us four and no more. Uh, is, is, you know, and, and sort of the chosen people are just over here, a little, you know, a little tiny group, that kind of thing. Um, but that is not what actually Paul is arguing for here in Romans 9 at all. There's a great expansiveness to God's mercy in, in his love. So, for instance, when you turn to the book of Revelation and you see heaven, how many, how many souls are in heaven? Anybody know a number? <laughs> all right. No. No, it's, it's, it says, gathered around the throne was a, a number that what? No one could count. It was beyond counting. So, so you have this massive, huge uh, community of worshipers that is beyond imagination, that as far as the eye can see, here everyone, no one could count. So this is a, a critical factor in terms of our perceptions. So the mystery of unbelief is very real, and Jesus encountered it too. This is at the top of your study guide. You have seen me, and yet do not believe. You might imagine that if somebody had just seen Jesus, heard Jesus preach, seen a miracle that Jesus did, well, that would, they would believe. Many people heard Jesus preach. Many people saw the miracles that he did. Many people encountered him and did not believe. So, so the mystery of unbelief is something that is, is perhaps shocking to us in some ways, but it shouldn't be if we have a proper estimation of the depth of the perversion of the heart of humankind. That unbelief is something which is deeply rooted in the human soul so that even when it encounters Jesus personally, it still says, I don't want to believe. A contemporary example of this would be the atheist Richard Dawkins, who in an interview about a year ago said that uh, even if he saw the second coming of Jesus, he would not believe. He would simply conclude that that was a being from another planet, and uh, uh, that's all it was. So you see, if you have a presupposition against believing, then of course no amount of data is going to satisfy you because you've simply eliminated the, the possibility of that being true. So when it comes to unbelief, we sometimes might think, well, if people just had enough information or if people just had the right encounter, then their hearts their hearts would be softer. But Jesus says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. That's John 10, verse 26. So the fact is that there are people that are part of the flock of God. And there are people who are not. And uh, those, and, 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 and you and I are, are not privy to that either. We don't know who that is. To whom are we called to preach the gospel? Everyone. Who is in charge of the outcome of the preaching of the gospel? That has to be something that we leave in God's hands because you and I can't go out into the marketplace and go, 
I can't even, like, I'm, you, you would not expect me to stand up here on Wednesday morning and go, okay, sheep, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, goat, you know. That's not, you, none of us have that kind of capacity. None of us can go into the marketplace that way. And there is a kind of self-righteous judgmentalism that sometimes comes on Christian people and they look at somebody who's an entertainer or someone um, in the business world or somebody in the political world or whatever. And they go, oh, well, they're beyond the pale. They're outside the, you know, whatever. None of us would have looked at Saul of Tarsus and thought, now there's a person who's close to the kingdom. And he was minutes away. If you'd have bumped into him on the road to Damascus and seen him riding down the road, breathing out threats, those crazy Christians, right? And you'd have passed him. You'd have, you would not have thought, there's a guy who is moments from conversion. But he was, right? So we have to divest ourselves of the kind of self-righteous judgmentalism that says, I, I have an insight into, into where God's at work. We have the responsibility, which neighbors are we supposed to love? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to whom do we preach the gospel? Everybody, right? So loving all, preaching to all, serving all, and leaving the outcomes with God. So Paul's discussion of divine sovereignty in offering free and effectual grace and mercy takes a decisive turn based on his outlook. One we should share as believers. What began as a question about why so many first century Jews didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah now becomes praise for God fulfilling his promise to bring the Gentiles into his kingdom, together with the Jews. So this issue of bringing in the Gentiles, the massive expanse of grace to bring in the Gentiles into the kingdom is something which is now at the heart of where Paul is turning in this particular chapter. So Paul's answer to unbelief is that we are not in a position to question God's wisdom, but we are, one, called to praise him for his saving mercy, and two, proclaim his good news to all nations. There are relatively few Jews who have believed, but this too was anticipated by the Jewish prophets who themselves faced Jewish unbelief, hardness of heart, rejection, and even death. Who killed Isaiah? Was it the Babylonians? No, it was his contemporaries. And by the way, the way they did that was they sawed him asunder. They sawed him, that, does, that means they sawed him in two, top to bottom. Thank you for your ministry, Isaiah. Right? Uh, how was Jeremiah's ministry received? Oh, Jeremiah, thank you for your words. We're so grateful. That was an excellent sermon. That's not what happened. So through the years, God's prophets, his messengers have been sent and frequently rejected by his people. So this idea of unbelief in Israel is nothing new. The rejection of the messenger from God is nothing new in their story. Here's what's new. The rejection of the son, the rejection of the messenger, has opened up a door, not only for those who do believe, but for the Gentile world to come in and be, become part of the family of God. Now, behind this is the story of the promise to Abraham. So we have to bear that in view whenever we start talking about the plan of God and the purpose of God in saving the world and the role of Israel in that plan. Because Abraham is the father. 
so what is the promise to Abraham? Well, let me read it to you from Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to turn back there. We're gonna, I'm going to have you turn to several passages here in just a second. Listen to Genesis chapter 12. This is God's call on Abram. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is the end scope of the call of Abraham? Just the people of Israel? No. All the families of the earth, Abraham, are going to be blessed through you. In you, in union with you, Abraham, all the families of the earth. So from the very first moment that God calls Abram, what God has in view is global. It is not narrow. It is not parochial. It is not ethnic. It is not national. It is something that has the whole scope of humanity in view. God's choice of Israel has this particular end in view as well. In Isaiah 49.6, God talks about his saving purpose being established through the Messiah. And he says, it is, listen to these words from Isaiah 49, it is too small a thing. Those of you who studied Isaiah with me will remember this text. It is too small a thing that I should send you to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will also make you a light for the nations. Now, the word for nations, goyim, the goyim, or in Greek, ethnos, is the word for Gentiles. I will also make you a light for the nations, the Gentiles, so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. The prophecy from Zechariah 9 that is spoken of when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what are they crying out? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's Jesus riding on? He's riding on a donkey. And so it says that that's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 where it says, Behold, your king comes to you, humble, seated on a donkey. And that passage in Zechariah 9 about the coming of the king into the city of Jerusalem says, For his reign will be from the river, from Jordan, to the ends of the earth. So God's purpose has always been global. Abraham, Isaiah, Zechariah, everything has always been with a view to the reclaiming of the whole of creation and all of the families of the earth. Psalm 67 is a very important psalm in this regard. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations, again, what are the nations? Let's the non-Jewish people. Why? Listen to Israel's song. God, our God, blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Why does God bless Israel? That what? All the ends of the earth may fear him. Some of you would sit here this morning and say, God has blessed me. And I'd agree with you. He has. Why? Why does God send blessing to his people? That all the ends of the earth may fear him. I was asked uh, a couple of months ago, how, what's, how much, how, what's the percentage of the church's budget that's devoted to missions? What's the answer to that question? A hundred percent. It's all mission. 
down to the light bulbs and cleaning the carpet. It's all mission. Everything we're about is mission. Everything we're doing is to bring Jesus to people. Sometimes that happens in this room. Sometimes it happens at Mercy Health. Sometimes it happens in a different country. Sometimes it happens through a giant party we have. Sometimes it happens because all of your neighbors are coming. Sometimes it happens in your home because you invited your neighbors and your friends. Sometimes it happens because a little child is being taught in a Sunday school class. But 100% of it is about what? Mission. Because God our God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. You see, it's just, you know, if I woke up this morning in London, as I did, I lived there for all those years, I w- and, and you were talking to me, you would think, David's a missionary. He lives over there. So, so the thing that makes me a missionary is that I am uh, across an ocean. I woke up a missionary this morning. My question is, did you? I hope so. I am a missionary pastor. Every single day I wake up, I'm on mission. Every single day. God gives me one more day, I'm on the mission. That's where we live. So God has always had this massive scope in view that he is bringing the whole world to himself. And that's at the core of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all what? Nations. The ethnos. The goyim. The ends of the earth. All right. So how does this work out? So this grace for all nations means that God has gone ahead of us. Will everyone believe? No. No. Now, let me ask you a question. How good a preacher was Jesus? I mean, let's think about that for a second. Now, Paul wasn't so good, just to be clear about that. I mean, we we know that. He he mentioned that. The Corinthians said, you write really good letters, but your messages are kind of sucky. Okay? That's a rough paraphrase of the Greek there. Okay, he writes really good letters, but his teaching's kind of uh, kind of boring. We read about him going long and people falling asleep and falling out of windows when they fell asleep. You know, I mean, I mean that guy's not very good. Let's face it, the search committee would not have chosen Saul of Tarsus. All right, not a great orator. Okay, so but Jesus, Jesus, pretty good preacher, pretty good preacher, and yet people listen to him preach and they and they and they do they all go, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. No, they go, let's throw that guy off a cliff. That's the response of some. Others hear him and go, let's, let's stone him to death. That's the response. So let's remember that the outcome is about the Holy Spirit's activity and work. And not about human ability. It is always God's sovereignty at work. So I'm going to take some of these passages here at the bottom of the page, and we're going to go sort of in order of looking them up rather than the way they're listed here. So let's go to John's Gospel. John, uh, John chapter 6. And we're just going to plow through these briefly together. Okay? And I, I just want to make a case for the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of God's Word in the mission. Okay, so John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, That you have seen me and yet do not believe. Okay. All the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All right. Who is it that comes to Jesus? What's the qualifier? Verse 37. What's the qualifier? All the Father what? 
all the Father gives to me. Now, this is language which is very important in John's gospel. You're going to see it. You may not have ever noticed it before. Maybe today will be the first time you notice it. All the Father gives to me shall come to me. Now, let me just stop there for just a second. How many of you have come to Jesus? Okay, why did that happen? It's because you're, because, listen, God the Father gave you the gift of Jesus. But this verse says that God the Father gave you as a gift to Jesus. All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will what? Okay. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, sometimes people say, well, I'm, you know, can you lose your salvation? I lose everything. I lose my glasses. I lose my keys. I, lose, I mean, you know, I lose my mind. Most people know that already. The question, it's the wrong question. The question is whether you can lose your salvation. The question is whether the Savior can lose you. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. And all the Father gives to me, I will lose what? Nothing. Never going to lose you. But raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. Um, or sorry, verse 43. Um, or where am I at? Verse 41. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Hey, pal, we know, we know where you grew up. We know, your, we know your parents. We know your, what do you mean you came down from heaven? Have you lost your marbles? Jesus answered and said to them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me, what? Draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The reason you came to Jesus is because God the Father drew you to Jesus. Now, you don't have to like that idea, but it's true. And by the way, the word for draw there is not, oh, won't you come over? It, it's a very violent term. It, there's a lot of kicking and screaming going on here, okay? This is Lewis, the reluctant convert, you know, those words. All right, well, let's, let's look a little bit further. Look at John 10. John 10, 25. Let's, let's go a little further. Uh, John 10, 25. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, yet you don't believe. So they've, they've heard Jesus preach, they've seen his miracles, but they still don't believe. Why? So think about that. People hear Jesus preach, they see Jesus' miracles, and they still don't believe. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has what? Given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then look over in John 17, Jesus' great intercessory prayer. John 17. Again, and look at, watch this language of you being given to the Son. 
God's people being the inheritance of the Son. John 17, let's look at verses 1 and 2, 6 and 9 and so on. Uh, These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. All right. How much authority does Jesus have over all of humanity? All authority. And then there are out of humanity those to whom, uh, those whom the Father has given to the Son. Jesus, here's your bride. Here are your people. What does Jesus give his people? Eternal life. What comes first, being given to the Son or the Son giving you eternal life? You are given to the Son. And because you are the inheritance of the Son, he gives you what? Eternal life. All right? Then look at verse 6. I manifested thy name to the men thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. And then verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom thou hast given me. Now, there is a time to pray for the whole world. But in this particular instance, Jesus is not praying for the whole world. He's praying on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. Then verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you gave me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which has to do with his his crucifixion. Who's the one that was given who perishes? That's Judas Iscariot, all right, so that the mission of Jesus to die on the cross might be fulfilled. And then uh, let's look at verse uh, 24. Uh, Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am. <laughs> one of these days, every one of us, barring the second coming, are going to die. And w- w- what happens? What happens? Where, what becomes of us? Well, bodily, we know we'll be raised. But what is instantly the first thing our eyes behold? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so that Jesus' prayer for you is for you to be with him, to share in his glory. Those, Father, whom you've given me, I want them with me to see my glory. You're going to see what Isaiah saw. Right? I mean, how amazing is that? And when you get there, you're not going to be going, oh, yeah, 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 I've got a couple questions. You're just going to be going, Lord, you're more beautiful than I ever knew. And I thank you, Father, thank you that you gave, I don't understand it. Why, I don't understand why you made me the inheritance of your son. There was a day when the father said to the son, I'm giving Cassidy to you. I think he got a bum deal. Okay. I mean, seriously, think about that. I get him, Ah, could we not have done better? All right? But that's mercy. That's grace, isn't it? So this language of you are a gift from the Father to the Son is part of the astonishing perspective of mercy and grace. How does that unfold 
in the epistles and in, in the preaching of the apostles. Well, let's look at Acts 13. Acts 13, let's go over there. And let's just t- look at a couple of passages in the book of Acts. Acts 13, uh, verses uh, 48 and 49. So... Uh, Paul's preaching, he's preaching in the synagogues and so on, and, and, and he's being rejected by many, and the message is being accepted by a few. And so he, then he says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, and he, it's because he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, which we were mentioning earlier, salvation should come to all the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and has as many as as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Now, there's a verse that will mess with you. All right, because here's what most people do. Most people think, well, if I believe, then I'm appointed to life. But this verse says, as many as are what? Appointed to life, then what? What comes first, the appointment or the believing? The appointment. So you preach, and as many as are what? Appointed unto life, then what? Believe. All right. Let's look at um, Acts 16, verse 14. Acts 16, verse 14. A couple of other places here. Acts 16, verse 14. Now here uh, is uh, Lydia uh, hearing the gospel preached. So uh, look at verse 13, pick it up there. On Sabbath day, we went outside the gate... This is Acts 16, verse 13, to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. What happened to Lydia? God opened her heart. How much does a blind person healed by Jesus contribute to the recovery of their eyesight? How much does a paralyzed person healed by Jesus contribute to their capacity to walk and run and leap? How much does a dead person in the tomb raised by Jesus contribute to their resuscitation? No, nothing. God has to do what? Be at work. And so in the mystery of God, he is at work through his word in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the mystery of unbelief is great. The astonishment of belief is even more amazing. So then in the epistles, this comes through as well. Uh, Let's look at um, Titus. This is a good place. We could look at some places in Ephesians and Romans, but Titus is a lovely one. And I'll go there because, it, you know, most people skip it. Um, first and second Timothy and Titus. It's in the part of your New Testament where the pages are still t- stuck together. Go back over there. Titus 2. Or <laughs> Titus 2, 11 to 15. Titus 2, 11 to 15. All right, watch this. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, that, that's all, that is all nations, all, all men, instructing us, here's what grace does, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and uh, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So Jesus comes to redeem a people. These are his people. Well, who are these people? Who constitutes these people? When Jesus gives his life, he gives his life to redeem a people, and it's global in its reach. So who's included in that? Well, look, at, look back a couple of pages at 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1, um, let's pick it up in verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God has saved you and given you a holy calling that has nothing to do with your works. It is according to his purpose. And when was that purpose granted to you? In Christ Jesus, when? From all eternity. From all eternity. And then finally, um, and we won't turn to it, but 1 Peter 2, verses 3 through 10, Paul talks about, or Peter rather, talks about um, you being a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So now, if we go back to Romans chapter 9, if we go over there, um, we're, we're going to kind of now begin to come to terms with the magnitude of this inclusion of a whole lot of people who've been given to the Father. So Paul's turning a corner, and he's saying, God is at work in the world. He has always had something of global import that was going on, this salvation of the world. And it's all according to his sovereignty. So now here in Romans chapter 9, um, Paul talks, here's the, here's the turning point, verse 24. He talks about us, the called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So there in Rome, you've got the Jews and the Gentiles. And remember that underlying, that underlying issue in the church in Rome. So we've got Jews and Gentiles together. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Now then he goes to Isaiah. But we've got to stop right here on this text from Hosea. We need to talk about that for just a minute. He is quoting from Hosea. Hosea is sometimes referred to as the deathbed prophet of Israel. Now, what do they mean by that? Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying to Judah. Now, those of you who've done your Bible literacy stuff, you know that Israel as a nation was divided. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. Isaiah is over here, ministering in Judah. We're going to turn to him in just a minute. Hosea is over here ministering in Israel, the northern kingdom. That's where Elijah was and Elisha was and so on. 
But when Hosea comes along, he is, I want you to, I want you to get this, he's the last prophet that will speak to Israel before that northern kingdom of Israel goes into captivity with the Assyrians. Okay? They're going to go into captivity. That happens like 350 years before Judah goes into captivity with the Babylonians. The northern kingdom of Israel disappears. You sometimes hear references to the lost tribes. Okay? What happened to the lost tribes of Israel? Okay. So Hosea is speaking into that situation. This unfaithful Israel, this idolatrous Israel. Now I need you to go back to Hosea. All right? So we're going to turn back to the Old Testament. And he's part of what's called the Minor Prophets. So this is part of the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So if, you're, if you want to locate it, you go to Matthew and turn left, okay, and into, the, into, the, uh, into the last section of the Old Testament. And it's right after Daniel, all right? So Hosea, chapter 2. Now, in this passage in Hosea, chapter 2, and you could... When you know that this is what's coming upon this northern kingdom, and they're about to go into captivity, um, it, uh, it allows you to read this with greater perspective. So, for instance, verse 2, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her on the day when she was born. And I will make her like a wilderness and make her like a desert land and slay her with thirst and have no compassion on her children because they are the children of harlotry. Their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Well, what's the end of this? Verse 8, she doesn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. It was I that lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they use for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will be able to rescue her. Verse 13, I will punish her for all the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me. That's what happened. So God's prophesying some stern judgment here on Israel, his unfaithful wife. Verse 14, is that the end of the story? Is that where God leaves? Is that where God leaves it? No, watch this. Therefore, behold, I will allure. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor as a door of hope. Now, what is Accor? Accor is the place in the book of Joshua where after the battle of Ai, a man was stoned to death because he kept back some of the spoils from the city of Jericho. Do you remember that story? Akor means trouble. Trouble. They say to this man, you have troubled us, God will trouble you. Okay, the word means trouble. 
All right, just take that word achor and put in the word trouble. I will give her the valley of trouble as a what? A door of hope. I'm going to bring you out into the wilderness, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you're, you're going to be in trouble, but your trouble is going to be what? A door of hope. And she will sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, which is my husband. And you will no longer call me Valai, my master. So there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a renewal, you see. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they will be mentioned by their name no more. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now that, I would love to just preach on that text right there. I will betroth you, and then you will know me. By the way, that's why, uh, the, well, no, I can't. I'm just kidding. That's another time. Um, now, what is going on in this text? Um, in, in this text, God says to the people who are going into captivity, I'm going to bring you back. Now, I've got a question for you. When in history did the tribes that went into captivity come back? Paul has an answer because it never happened. It never happened. So you go, well, has the word of God failed? You see, we read these verses in Romans, and we don't really read them with very Jewish eyes. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I guess. But this passage in Hosea, in their thinking, is something that's never happened. What happened? They went into captivity and they were never brought back. All right. Look at verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now, that is the verse that is quoted in Romans 9. Okay? You see that verse? It comes at the end of this prophecy about the regathering of the lost tribes. All right, now go over to verse chapter 9 of Romans. That's where Paul quotes that. It will be in that place where it was said, you're not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Those who are not my people are my people. And who is Paul referring to? the Gentiles. What happened to the lost tribes? They went into where? Into the world. And so part of what God was doing in saving the Gentile world was saving his lost people. Part of the Gentiles that came in were some of those lost tribes that were dispersed throughout the world. God kept his promise. In saving the whole world, he also saved some of those people who were scattered hundreds of years before. 
What Paul's saying here in this passage is that God, by saving the world, the Gentiles, not only fulfilled his promise to Abraham, he kept his promise to Israel through Hosea. Those who are not my people are now my people. You don't know this, but they may not even be able to do 23andMe and do the DNA test, but there's a whole bunch of these people that are out there in the Gentile world that are the descendants of these people, and God's brought them back to himself. When those people would have read that verse and said, God fulfilled his promise, they would have been stunned by this. That when Jesus died and said, I'm bringing the whole world to myself, part of what he was doing was regathering the lost tribes. That's part of what was going on. And then, about Israel proper, about the descendants of Judah, the southern kingdom, Isaiah, now verse 27 of Romans 9, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel are like the sand of the sea, it's a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and Gomorrah, as Sodom, and would have resembled Gomorrah. Well, how much is left of Sodom and Gomorrah? Nothing. And so what Isaiah says is this. God is going to bring a judgment in Judah. And he's going to leave a remnant. He's going to leave a portion. If God had dealt with us the way we deserved, we would be like what? We're just wiped out. But that isn't what happened. So when, when, what the point Paul's making is this. You're worried that only a few are saved? I'm telling you that's exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. You should not be astonished that few are saved. You should be amazed that what? Any are saved. And not only is God's grace so amazing that he has saved some, he has also expanded the boundaries of grace so that all of his promises, even to Israel, his unfaithful spouse that ran off with the Gentiles, that ran off with Baal, he has brought them back too. Because they were hidden among these Gentiles who are coming in. What shall we say then? Verse 30. The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So the truth of the matter is that Abraham's family is much bigger than anything we could have imagined. But the faithful people in Israel were always much smaller than everybody thought. It was always a remnant. And this is just exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. What Paul's saying is exactly what Jesus foretold. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Let's turn back over there. This is a very important passage in relationship to Romans chapter 9 because here we got uh, Jesus dealing with the Romans. So we've been looking at Romans. Let's see Jesus talk to a Roman, okay? Matthew chapter 8. Um, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when he came to Capernaum, a centurion came to him. So what's a centurion? Right, that's, there's, here's your Roman soldier. Centurion comes to him saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. 
So Jesus is willing to go into a Gentile home and heal a Roman soldier's servant. How much scandal would that have caused in the Jesus movement at the time? Think about that. But Jesus is just fine. I'm coming to your house. Now, if, you, if Jesus said to you, I'm coming to your house, you'd have said what? Come on. Not this, this guy's like, oh, hang on a second. So he says, you don't really need to go all that trouble. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone where. So who's got all the faith here? The Gentile Roman guy. And so he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said to the centurion, go your way. Let it be done to you as you believe. And his servant was healed that very hour. Jesus teaches that there will be many who think they're part of the kingdom and find that they're not. Whereas there are many people who are Gentiles, north, south, east, and west, and they will find themselves at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because what's important? Your ethnicity or faith? What is the mark of being the people of God? Is it birth or new birth? It's new birth. It is not race. It is grace. So what Paul's teaching in Romans 9 is actually anticipated in Jesus' teaching. And in Acts 15, uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, we find the very same thing um, dealt with. I don't have time to go into that today. So what happens is that Israel's prideful unbelief, thinking they could make themselves right with God on the basis of their works, is tossed aside. And it is Christ himself who becomes the source of life. So I'll close it with this, John chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 12, well, you have to include, uh, really you have to include verse 11 as well on this, John eleven twelve. 12. He talks about those who are born of the flesh and those who are um, born of, of promise and those who believe. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he became the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So he comes to his own, verse 11, Israel, and his own, what? Received him not. But to everybody who did believe, not just Jews, but who else? He calls them the sons of God. So here's what I want you to know this morning. God's mercy is expansive. It's expansive and it rescues And it's sovereign and it's gracious. And you were given in eternity past as a gift from the Father to the Son. And when Jesus came from heaven to earth to die on the cross, he did not, when he was hanging on the cross, go, I hope somebody buys this. I hope this will do the job. I hope somebody believes this. No, he knew before he ever came that you were given to him by the Father. But what it would cost to make you his is for him to die, to pay the penalty of your sin. And rather than going, looking at us and going, no thanks, 
he said, I love them so much, I will die for them. I will lay down my life for the 